0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 2nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I am Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A split WCAB panel decision held that an employer is not required to pay in advance for oral surgery. Here's what happened in the case of Murphy v. PetSmart. Kathleen Murphy was injured while working as a cashier for PetSmart. In 2001, the case was settled by a compromise and release for $20,000. But the defendant remained liable for reasonable future medical care. In 2012, applicant's treating physician, who was an oral surgeon, filed a request for authorization for dental treatment. He demanded an advance payment of $25,600 because of the amount of implants that were needed. The treatment plan submitted to UR included this request for an advance payment. The claim administrator issued a UR decision authorizing the requested care, but the UR approval letter did not expressly approve payment of any particular sum of money to the oral surgeon in advance. The defendant later agreed to authorize the surgery but declined to make an advance payment as requested and the doctor was advised that payment would be made according to a fee schedule. The physician replied again demanding advance payment and refused to accept a fee schedule amount without knowing what that amount would be. Ultimately, in 2013, the defendant issued a check in the amount of $25,510 to the oral surgeon as prepayment for the dental services originally requested in June of 2012. The parties then went to trial on the issue of a Labor Code Section 5814 penalty for delay. The work comp judge ordered payment of a 25% penalty, finding there was no medical or legal basis for the delay. Reconsideration was granted, and the penalty was reversed in the split panel decision of Murphy v. PetSmart. In reversing, the majority panel concluded that the defendant did not act unreasonably because it had no obligation to pay for applicants' dental treatment in advance. The labor code makes it clear that a defendant has no obligation to provide payment for medical services until 45 days after medical services have been provided. Thus, despite the oral surgeon's insistence that defendant pay for treatment in advance, there is no obligation to pay for medical or dental services before they have been provided. Commissioner Sweeney, however, dissented from the opinion, noting that the defendant was clearly notified that payment in advance was required for treatment due to the high upfront costs. The defendant approved the treatment even in the face of the requirement for prepayment and after authorization did nothing to retract or clarify this authorization for months. Any confusion, she says, in this case was caused by the defendant's approval of the suggested treatment without communicating that it did not agree to payment in advance until almost five months later. Thus, Commissioner Sweeney would have affirmed the decision that defendant deprived the applicant of necessary medical treatment for many months. And now our fraud report. Executives of a law Mesa-based firm that buys and renovates home for resale, pleaded guilty to a felony charge of unemployment tax evasion and a misdemeanor count of failure to have workers' compensation insurance. 48-year-old David Scott Wolfe and his company, Three Frogs Incorporated, along with Chief Financial Officer Jonathan D. Cox and Chief Operating Officer John Murphy, were charged last year with the tax and insurance fraud counts. Wolf was also charged with a violation of safety standards in connection with the 2013 tree trimming accident that killed 42-year-old Joshua Pudzi. Pudzi was trimming trees using a cherry picker when a large branch from a 60-foot eucalyptus tree fell on him. Wolf, Cox, and Murphy are scheduled to be sentenced on March 26th. And in regulatory news... A new law is proposed in Sacramento that targets gender-based apportionment in workers' comp cases. The proposal was triggered by a claim filed by a Bay Area mechanical um, designer who suffered from carpal tunnel syndrome. The designer said she had her workers' comp reduced for a reason that was caught the attention of women's groups and lawmakers. She was postmenopausal. And Sue Borg, her San Mateo attorney, said there is more cases than just this one. Borg said she frequently sees cases where women injured in the workplace are penalized for gender-related factors like pregnancies and menopause. Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez will introduce a bill that would ensure that being Female is not treated as a pre existing condition. The bill would prohibit a woman's worker's compensation from being reduced based on pregnancies, breast cancer, menopause, osteoporosis, or sexual harassment. Permanent disability apportionment law underwent major reforms under Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2004. But despite those reforms, a study last year found that the California employer pays the highest workers' comp costs in the nation. But the bill's supporters say the issue of gender bias and workers' compensation is real, despite laws prohibiting gender discrimination. Supporters say the issue is especially evident in the way breast cancer is treated among firefighters and police officers. The California Applicants Attorneys Association is sponsoring the legislation. Caw gives examples, such as an Orange County Hotel housekeeper who was injured moving a bed and was 100% disabled, but her employer was liable for only 2% of the injury based upon health conditions related to childbirth, obesity, age, and naturally occurring events. Christine Pelosi, chair of the California Democratic Party's Women's Caucus and daughter of House Majority Leader Nancy Polo- uh, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, said that this was unacceptable. Officials from the California Nurses Association said she regularly hears of nurses having their workers' compensation reduced due to diseases found mostly in women that weaken their bones. A new ProPublica national public radio report widely quoted in mainstream media claims that over the past decade, state after state has slashed workers' comp benefits so that employers are now paying the lowest rates for workers' comp than at any time since the 1970s. The dozens of legislatures who have changed their workers' compensation laws, they say, often cite the need to compete with neighboring states and be more attractive to businesses. According to the report, this results in a grim geographic lottery in which compensation, including for lost limbs, varies depending upon the state in which someone was hurt. The report claims the loss of an arm, for example, is worth up to $48,840 in Alabama, $193,950 in Ohio, and $439,858 in Illinois. The big toe ranges from $6,090 in California to $90,401 in Oregon. And a new report by the federal OSHA says that employers now provide only a small percentage of the overall financial cost of workplace injuries and illnesses through Workers' Comp. It says this cost shift has forced injured workers, their families, and taxpayers to subsidize the vast majority of the lost income and medical care costs generated by these conditions. These criticisms have dated back for decades. The Federal Occupational Safety and Health Act was enacted by Congress in 1970 and was signed into law by then President Richard Nixon. The new law authorized the National Commission on State's Workers' Compensation Laws. This was a group appointed by President Nixon in 1971 to study workers' compensation laws nationwide. It issued sweeping recommendations to upgrade state workers' compensation laws, including higher disability benefits, compulsory coverage, and unlimited medical care and rehabilitation benefits. It recommended that all states pay totally disabled workers at least two-thirds of their salary up to a maximum of the state's average weekly wage. Still, many states have not complied with the Commission's 1971 recommended standard wage, California responded to the commission's report by adopting mandatory vocational rehabilitation. It was argued at the time that by embellishing the California system with this new benefit, the state would head off a threatened federal takeover of work comp systems adopted in the various states. But mandatory vocational rehabilitation was later proven to be a costly mistake It was modified and ultimately revoked by the California legislature with little regret. The California Labor Commissioner's Office cited car wash businesses in the Los Angeles area more than $1.3 million last week for wage theft following a two-day enforcement activity. The majority of the violations were found at 35 car wash businesses that failed to register with the Labor Commissioner's Office as required by law. When car wash businesses fail to register, it is often an indicator of wage theft. The inspections uncovered numerous violations of state wage and hour laws affecting nearly 400 workers. The Labor Commissioner is also following up with some of the inspected car washes to conduct full wage audits. Violations cited including the failure to pay workers' minimum wage and overtime, which resulted in $412,000 in penalties and over $308,000 in liquidated damages. An additional 17 violations with citations totaling over $218,000 were issued to employers who did not carry workers' compensation insurance coverage. The wage, theft is a crime. Has it. the wage theft is a crime public awareness campaign includes multilingual print and outdoor advertising as well as radio commercials on ethics stations. But the bigger picture is that California's Labor Enforcement Task Force, or LETF, as a whole is cracking down on illegal businesses. Since its inception in 2012, the task force has inspected nearly 4,300 businesses suspected of operating in the underground economy. During its first three years, LETF joint inspections have found consistently higher rates of noncompliance. On average, more than 80% of LETF inspections have resulted in penalties for noncompliance. It it has assessed $4.2 million in wages due to workers. The LETF works in partnership with other agency enforcement programs to share information and draw upon each program's respective strengths. In 2012, the DIR initiated a collaborative relationship with the Employment Development Department's Joint Enforcement Strike Force. Similarly, in 2013, Assembly Bill 576 established the Revenue, Recovery, and Collaborative Enforcement Team to fight criminal tax evasion. In his signing message, Governor Brown directed the DIR to lead the Revenue Recovery and Collaborative Enforcement Team to ensure that the three teams work together and avoid overlapping efforts. Ongoing implementation activities including establishing a cross-referral protocol and appropriate data-sharing solutions to improve enforcement efficiency. Yet, each remains under the guidance of their respective agencies. More recently, the DIR has facilitated collaboration amongst local district attorneys' offices, roofing contractors, and labor groups to form the Roofing Compliance Working Group. This multi-agency coalition combats unsafe and unfair practices in the roofing industry. The incidence of serious workplace injuries and fatalities is higher in roofing when compared to other industries. DIR Director Christine Baker says that underground operations have an unfair advantage over legitimate law-abiding employers. The task force focuses on underground employers in high-risk industries known to frequently abuse the rights of low-wage workers rather than geographic sweeps that prove ineffective. The targeted industries include car washes, restaurants, garment manufacturing, roofing, construction, agricultural, and auto repair businesses. Frequent violations among underground employers include workplace health and safety violations, inadequate workers' comp insurance coverage, not paying state payroll taxes, and cheating workers on their earnings. And now safety regulations are focusing attention on the roofing industry. Cal OSHA says 75% of roofers it investigated violate safety regulations and the workplace incidence of serious injuries and fatalities in that industry is higher compared to other industries. After it conducted 126 investigations of roofing operations where an accident occurred, a full three out of four of those accidents occurred where there were violations of state safety regulations. Falls are the leading cause of death and serious injury, and most falls can be avoided by following safety regulations. For example, West Coast Riffing employee Leopoldo Ritana fell 36 feet to his death in 2013 at a job site in Ventura. He had not been wearing fall protection equipment or a positioning system. West Coast roofing was cited for 10 violations, including two serious in nature. Another example was a case involving Midwest roofing and solar employee Ernesto Rosales, who fell approximately 17 feet from the unprotected edge of an apartment building roof in Pico Rivera. He died five days after the accident. Cal OSHA cited Midwest Roofing and Solar for five serious violations. Serious violations are those where death or serious physical harm could result from a hazard created by the violation. As a result, Cal OSHA launched a safety awareness campaign for roofers. Cal OSHA's Roofing Maximum Enforcement Program is taking place up through November 1st and calls for targeted inspections of roofing operations across the state. This program will help ensure employers provide the necessary training and safety equipment to protect their workers on the job. Inspectors will carefully review safety measures at roofing operations and address safety issues they encounter. Its goal is to raise awareness for on-the-job safety in the roofing industry so that hazards are identified and corrected. If inspectors find a lack of protection or a serious hazard, they can issue a stop order at the site until the hazards are corrected. Cal offers online resources for workers and employers with a fact sheet on preventing slips and falls for roofers and other safety publications. Prescription drug formularies may be on the horizon for California workers' compensation. Although only four states, Washington, Texas, Ohio, and Oklahoma, have state-regulated drug formularies, four more are considering their use. The four are California, Montana, Tennessee, and Maine. The claim is that formularies will reduce drug costs and curtail inappropriate treatment that may hinder an injured worker's ability to return to work. However, the specific way drug formularies work varies state by state. Every state has different political realities, has different ways of addressing treatment guidelines, and different ways of addressing dispute resolution processes. All of that contributes to what kind of formulary is implemented. The primary goal in workers' compensation is to make sure that a person's treatment is related to their work-related injury. Another goal is proper utilization, which may require a change in a physician's prescribing behavior. When Texas implemented its mandatory formulary in 2011, the use of SOMA, a muscle relaxant, dropped by 90% on day one, because there are other more appropriate muscle relaxants. Before the formulary, doctors had gotten used to writing a script for SOMA. They did not consider other appropriate drugs. A potential indirect effect of a formulary is less addiction to prescription drugs, Ohio reported a 27% reduction in the use of opioids and a 73% reduction in the use of skeletal muscle relaxants after adoption of a formulary. The Workers' Compensation Research Institute said that a Texas-like formulary in other states could reduce total prescription costs by 29%. And the California Workers' Compensation Institute estimated that drug costs could be reduced between 12 and 42 percent. That's 124 to 420 million dollars in savings annually. The CWCI report also found that a formulary could reduce administrative costs related to medical dispute resolution. And now our medical report: the day that patients with osteoarthritis can ease their painful joints by using stem cell therapy to regenerate damaged cartilage is closer now that researchers successfully produced cartilage using embryonic stem cells. This success is attributed to a new procedure developed under strict laboratory conditions by researchers at the University of Manchester in the UK osteoarthritis mainly affects people over the age of 60 and is a major cause of disability. It is a degenerative disease caused by whirring away of cartilage and joints that have been continually stressed during a person's lifetime, including the knees, hips, fingers, and lower spine region. The World Health Organization estimates that around 9.6% of men and 18% of women aged over 60 have symptomatic osteoarthritis. In their study, the team describes how they used the new protocol to generate uh, human, uh, generate new cartilage from human embryonic stem cells. They implanted the precursor cartilage cells into damaged cartilage in the knee joints of lab animals. After four weeks, the cartilage was partially repaired. After 12 weeks, the cartilage surface was smooth and similar in appearance to normal cartilage. Later examination of the regenerated cartilage showed that cartilage cells from the embryonic stem cells were still present and active in the tissue. The study is promising because not only did the new protocol lead to regenerated healthy looking cartilage, but... There were none of the adverse side effects that have since dashed the high hopes raised in the early days of stem cell research. Testing the new protocol in animals is the first step toward running trials in people with arthritis. The team is already planning their next step to build on their findings. Another approach to using human embryonic stem cells to generate new cartilage cells is using adult stem cells. Adult stem cells are found in certain niches in the body and are not as controversial as embryonic stem cells, but their potential is not as great. Current treatments for osteoarthritis can only relieve painful symptoms, and there are no effective therapies that delay or reverse cartilage degeneration. Joint replacements are successful in older people, but these options are not effective in younger people or athletes, with sports injuries. The leading national evangelist for a cause and effect relationship between professional football and dementia is Dr. Ann McKee, a neuropathologist and expert in neurodegenerative disease at the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. McKee is a leading authority on chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE a degenerative brain disease that has been found in some athletes participating in boxing, American football, ice hockey, and other contact sports and military service. Dr. McKee has presented her findings to National Football League officials and testified before the United States House Judiciary Committee claiming that there is a cause-and-effect relationship. Her post-mortem findings from the, form the basis of the thousands of civil and workers' compensation cases that have been filed by former professional athletes for CTE. Yet, despite the public and media perception to the contrary, her findings have not passed the scrutiny and received the support of her peers. The British Journal of Sports Medicine published the consensus statement on concussion in sport following the fourth international conference on concussion in sport held in Zurich in 2012. The leading medical experts in the world concluded in the consensus statement that CTEA was not related to concussions alone or simply exposure to contact sports. As such, according to the consensus statement, the speculation that repetitive concussion or subconcussive impacts cause CTE according to them remains unproven. The international conference will again convene next year for the fifth time to study the issue. And now more notable professional athletes are supporting the cause. Newark Giants punter Steve Weatherford and former National Football League receiver Sidney Rice have announced they will donate their brains to medical research after their deaths. The two NFL champions want to help brain disease research, especially on the debilitating effects of concussion. Rice estimated he had incurred between 15 and 20 concussions since starting to play football at the age of 8. Rice was a Super Bowl-winning receiver with the Seattle Seahawks last year. The two stars hope their commitment might mobilize others to do the same. Both Rice and Weatherford say they thought the NFL had taken positive steps to address the dangers of repetitive blows to the head, but that more needed to be done. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for The WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Skern & Kelly. Thanks for having joined us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.